Listen on as I read now Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Having considered uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 last time, we look at the conclusion of this stage of the argument, at least, verses 5 and 6. Let me read verse verse 4. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to that uh, or to what we were held by. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, as Paul says, that we are able to serve you now, being married to Jesus Christ, not in the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the spirit. We ask you, as this is uh, so obviously such an important consideration to the Christian life. uh, The the whole idea of freedom, the whole idea of, of, of Christian living. God, we ask you that through the preaching you might shed great light upon your word and that you might bring your word to us with power, even this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, uh, this uh, verses 5 and 6 are the conclusion of this uh, smaller section of chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you remember last time, uh, there were three main sections in chapter 7. There is the main argument, chapter uh, 7, verses 1 through 6. And then there are two objections that he answers in, uh, in, the, in the next two sections. And then he resumes the argument in chapter 8. And so we're, we're at uh, the real heart of uh, what he's hoping to say here. Uh, chapter 7, verse 4 being the key verse. The thought being that we die to our former husband, the law, in order that we might be joined to our new husband, namely Jesus Christ. You notice he doesn't say a divorce has occurred, but a death has occurred so that we might be joined to another, even Jesus Christ. And uh, as I indicated last time, let me stress again that uh, chapter seven, verses one through six must be seen as the true exposition of what he says in chapter six, verse 14. Uh, For there again, Paul does as he's apt to do in Romans. He, He makes a statement. Then he clears away the objections. That's what he did in verses 15 to the end of the chapter. And then he resumes the argument. Chapter 6, verse 14, uh, you all know it well. Uh, for you're not under, uh, well, I don't remember the order now. Uh, for sin, I had it backwards. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And Paul doesn't uh, even begin to expound that until chapter 7. Actually, he's answering the question, uh, shall we sin that? Uh, or, or because we are under uh, grace, but not under law, law, certainly not. But resuming uh, that argument now in chapter seven, what is at stake? And, and surely this is something that every Christian is desirous and keenly interested to know. What is at stake is what it means to be under grace. Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law, but under grace. Yes, but what does that mean? What does it mean to not be under law? What does it mean to be under grace? These are things, as you know, that we tend to misunderstand. And as a result of misunderstanding them, uh, we fall into the, the errors of legalism or else of the antinomianism. And we have so much difficulty walking 
in balance or holding things in balance in the Christian life. Uh, Let me try to illustrate what I mean. Uh, One Christian, uh, you're all familiar with this sort of thing. I can imagine that you've faced it yourself. I certainly have. One Christian states his desire to keep the law. He says, you know, I I would really like to do a better job living up to the standard that's set set forth in God's law. Let's take the fourth commandment, for example, since that seems to be the most debated. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Here is a Christian man who says, I want to do a better job keeping the Sabbath. He says this to his fellow Christian and his fellow Christian responds saying, and tell me if you've never had this kind of uh, disagreement or discussion with a fellow Christian. The fellow Christian says to him, but you're not under law. As though to say, you're wrong in your desire to keep the law. You've missed the point. You're not under law. Uh, And then uh, this Christian man who expressed his desire to keep the fourth commandment responds to the other. True enough, but I am under grace. And have you any idea what that means? I understand that I'm not under law, but I am under grace. And that is where we find ourselves, not only in the course of Paul's argument, but uh, but in our Christian walks all of us together. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. But do we have any idea what that means? The argument last time was this. While you were married to the old husband, while you were under him, namely the law, you couldn't bear fruit for God. And so you had to die to him in order that you might be married to another so that you could bear fruit for God. Chapter 7, verse 4. But wait a second, someone says. I have no difficulty seeing that a man who is married to Jesus Christ is able to abound in fruit for God. But I do have difficulty seeing how it is the case that he who is under the law or married the law is unable to do the same. Paul is assuming and he is stating a a central weakness uh, found in the law. And found in those who are under the law. That is what he goes on to express in chapter 7. Especially verse 5. Paul said we had in verse 4. We had to get out from under our old husband. To be married to another. So that we could bear fruit for God. But in in verse 5 he answers the question. Why we could never bear fruit in the former position. In other words going back to what he says in chapter 6 verse 14. He says, you're not under under law, but you're under grace. Well, what is the disadvantage of being under the law? Why is that position undesirable from the standpoint of godliness? Or I could even put it this way. Why is that position undesirable from the standpoint of keeping the law and thus bearing the fruit of holiness to God? That's what Paul uh, is answering now in verses 5 and 6, why we had to be married to Jesus if we ever wanted to bear fruit for God, those who were under the law. And I I want to begin before I analyze the argument in verses uh, 5 and 6 to analyze two words and then I'll look at two people. The two people are the two people described in verses 5 and 6, the man who's under the law and the man who's under grace. But before we even look at that, I want to look at these two words, namely grace and law, and I want to begin with grace. Because if you don't know what grace means or what grace is, then there really is no use in even going beyond chapter 6, verse 14. What is grace? Well, there's several things that we could say about it. Paul has been at pains to expound it. In fact, 
I was, even I was a little bit surprised as I went back through Romans chapters 1 through 6 to see how often he used the word. Somehow in my mind I thought he, he had held on to it until chapter 6, but that wasn't true at all. The key idea is that of a free gift, and that's actually the language that he uses often. It's synonymous with grace. Salvation is a free gift, Paul says. In other words, it's by grace, not by works. Salvation is that which God gives to man freely, that for which he did not labor. It's given to him as a gift. The gift is, more particularly, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the gift is, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or if you listen to earlier arguments, uh, you notice the language of gift comes out, chapter 3, verse twenty. Uh, 24, you don't have the, the word gift, but being justified freely by his grace. It's something that's given freely. It isn't something that you earned. Chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says, contrasting uh, the wages of Adam's sin, which was death. He says, but the free gift is not like the offense. And he keeps going on. The gift by the grace of the one man. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. But the free gift which came. He keeps saying uh, he keeps saying that the gift of God salvation is a gift. That's what grace means. But another thing that we could say about grace is that it is a power in history. It is a principle which is operating throughout uh, the history of man and the history that you read about in the Bible. In fact, Paul, when he speaks about this power, says that it is raining or it is abounding. You don't say that about something unless it's a power, unless it's a force. It is uh, raining and abounding, Paul says, even as sin is abounding and sin is raining through the law unto death. Chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You see, it's a power and it's a greater power than sin. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through Righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, that's the answer. If man is a sinner and he's under the power of sin, he needs a greater power. And that's precisely what grace is. But grace is also a state of being. It isn't just a gift or uh, or a power. It is a state of being. In other words, it's. Uh, the way in, what, in which someone lives or finds himself. This is what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He's saying that through Jesus Christ and by faith, we have access into it. And now we're standing in it. Or uh, to use the language of chapter 6. And it's the same idea in essence. He says, you're standing under it. You're under the resources of grace. It's where you are. It's where you find yourself. It's, it's how you relate to God. It's a state of being. And what you discover as you are standing into this grace is not only that you are justified, chapter 5, but chapter 6, you find that uh, the whole of your life has been transformed, that you are now totally renewed. You're a new person. The old man has died. The new man has been raised together with Jesus Christ. So that now you're a new person altogether. That's the result of grace in your life is a power. It's a state of being. 
And so Paul is saying that the whole tendency of grace, and you can see how this overturns the argument of the antinomian, shall we sin that grace may abound? The whole tendency of grace is to destroy the power of sin. Both in history and in a man's personal life. And thus to state it in the other way, as Paul goes on to say in chapter 7, the tendency of grace is to promote the fruit of personal holiness. So that now I'm living a life which is pleasing to God, something I could not do before. You see, grace enters in even as sin is abounding, but grace is abounding all the more. And so it breaks the power of sin. It delivers a man from, uh, from sin's dominion. That is the whole argument. And the man who is under grace or who is standing in it, however you like to put it, is the man who is enjoying this. Everything that Paul is describing. And he knows it. He knows it. On the other hand, there's a second word, and that's law. Equally, Paul says a man could be under law. Chapter 6, verse 14. Which has also been a key part of the argument. Again, it doesn't just come in in chapter 6, but it's been the argument all along. He uses the exact language in chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that that, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There, Paul is envisioning... The universal condition of man is being under the law. And as a result of being under the law, the law here, like grace, is a power. It's an active power in in his life. It's speaking to him. It's making him aware of certain things. It's holding him accountable before God. It's condemning him actively. It's making him aware of the wrath of God. It's robbing him of every excuse. If you remember how Paul puts it in chapter uh, chapters one and two. So they are without excuse. He keeps saying what what makes man aware of that? It's the law and the sinner who listens to the law. Let us be honest. He rarely does. But but the law is there over him, dominating him, speaking to him. And the man who listens to the law knows it. He is aware of his trouble. He is aware of his plight. In fact, Paul is going to expound this in the next section of Romans chapter seven. Another thing that the law, we could say about the law, is that it does not agree with the promise or it does not agree with faith. Law and grace are contrary principles. For the law, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, pays a wage. In the case of sin, it pays the wage of death. In the case of righteousness, which is unheard of in this world, but in the case of righteousness, it pays the wage of eternal life. The law pays a wage. But it only makes payment where it is earned. It never it never gives what a man does not deserve. But grace and the promise bestows something freely. And what it bestows freely is contrary to what a man deserves and what he's earned. Uh, this is the argument that Paul, I, I don't think I have the time to read it, but there were several verses I had hoped to read from chapter four. If, if you go back and read chapter four, you see that's the central argument. The law pays a wage. But what about the man who can't who can't earn the wages of the law? Well, by faith, he finds something different. But then Paul goes so far as to say this about the law. Chapter five, verse 20. He says that the law entered that the offense might abound. That's an interesting statement. He actually makes two statements about the law there. Uh, The word entered functions more like entered alongside of. The law entered alongside of 
the offense. In other words, Paul says it was given later. It was given afterwards. The offense was already there, Paul tells us, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. That's chapter 5, verse 12. Sin entered the world through the sin of Adam, but the law came later. It came through Moses, not through Adam. But why did it come later? What was God's purpose in giving the law through Moses? He says, in order, you would think he was about to say, now this gets at what he's going to say in chapter 7. You would think he was going to say, the law came in order to restrain sin. That isn't what he says. He says that the law came in order that sin might might abound. That the effect of the law coming into the world through Moses was that the problem of sin was aggravated totally. And the result was that uh, was not that people began to sin less, but that they began to sin more. All of this is a picture and it's already been painted in chapters one through six of what it means for a man to be under the law. The law is speaking to him. It's condemning him it is contrary to grace and it's actually making the situation worse not better the man in other words who is under law is under sin's dominion remember what he says in chapter 6 verse 14 for sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace but for the one who's under the law sin is and has dominion whereas to be under grace is to be freed from such dominion I wonder whether uh, stating it in that way would help those two men I envisioned in their dispute. But all of this is what led the Apostle Paul to tell us in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Not only that we needed to be delivered from the law, our former husband, but why? Uh, But also, ultimately... It will lead him in the later verses of chapter 7 to defend the law and to vindicate the law. But returning now to the argument which is before us, we notice Paul engages in something he's done before. He presents a contrast between two lives or two men. It, It could be two men, the unbeliever and the believer, although I think it's more helpful if we say it's the same man, but it's the old man and the new. The man he was and the man he's become. Uh, Paul had just done this in chapter 6, verses uh, 20 through 23. He speaks of the life that you lived when you were slaves of sin. What fruit did you bear to God doing those things of which you're now ashamed? But now, having been set free and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. It's a contrast between the person you were and the person you are. It's a contrast between the old and the new. That's one of Paul's favorite contrasts. And I would suggest it should be a favorite, uh, a favorite way of expressing things among people today. Well, we might ask, why does Paul keep dwelling on this? Has he not already made the point in chapter 6? Why bring it into chapter 7? Uh, well, uh, would it surprise you if I told you that he's not going to be done with it in chapter 7 either? In fact, he's going to go on describing it through chapter 8 as well. Uh, A little book that I've been using, it it can't be more than 80 pages, uh, written by John Stott. A very simple commentary on chapters 5 through 8 is called Men Made New. That's the theme of this entire section. Men Made New. In other words, what it is to be a Christian, especially in contrast to what you were. What God has made you now, the new man in Christ. That's the great thing to expound. And that's the great thing that should interest us all. What it means to be a Christian. But why does he keep contrasting 
uh, the present estate with the old? Why does he not simply take the new and look at that solely for its own sake? Well, we would do well here to remember the value of such a contrast. I have three things to say here. The first is this, because uh, in making the contrast, the whole wonder of grace appears to become a Christian. Paul says involves a complete change. The old is past, the new has come. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh now, but according to the newness that has come. It represents, Paul says, a total break with the past. And that only appears in the contrast itself. You can only appreciate the newness of what has come in contrast with the old. Look at the difference, Paul keeps uh, saying. Look at this complete change. We are not what we once were. Do you realize what has happened as a result of grace coming into your life? As a second reason, and we saw this in chapter 6 as well, it keeps us from ever wanting to go back. Paul says, what fruit did you bear doing those things for which you are now ashamed? We need to see sin in its true colors. We need to see the old life for what it was. We need to see uh, that from which God has delivered us. So that we will never be tempted to go back. So that we'll keep going forward as new men and women in Jesus Christ. But as a third reason, and this is a new reason. We need to see why the old husband was no good for us. We need to see why there was no advantage of being under the law. Though it might have seemed so. And certainly the Jew imagined there was. But there was none. Why he was bad for us, we might say. A bad husband. An unfruitful husband. He could never make us fruitful for God. And not only could he not help us, but actually the effect of being married to the old husband was that things were only getting worse all the time. And so that brings us now to the second point, and that is two lives. There is the old life and the new life. And again, I think it's most helpful to look at this under uh, the heading of the same person. The man that I was, the man that I am. The man that I was, the old life, the characteristic features. There's four things he says in verse five. Well, let me just read the verse and then I'll I'll try to uh, break it up under four headings. He says, for when we were again, he's looking at ourselves as Christians. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Well, as I say, he says four things there. The first is he says that formerly we were in the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean the body uh, solely, because even now we're in the body, aren't we? But it does mean being in the flesh. You think about being in grace or under grace. It means a state of being. Being in the flesh is Paul's way of describing the life of sin, the life that is opposed to God, the life of indulgence, if you will, of constantly giving in. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 8, as I I think is a helpful summary, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's the man whose life is opposed to God. And uh, what that means is clarified by the second thought. He says, the sinful passions were at work in our members. That is what uh, the flesh means in scripture. We read it in Galatians chapter 5. He says the flesh lusts against the spirit. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And then he goes on to outline the works of the flesh. All manner of sin 
And do you notice he speaks of the lustings of the flesh, the desires, the sinful passions that are at work, he says, in our members. And he says not only that they are there, but he says that they are working. These sinful passions are at work. Uh, The notion uh, in this Greek word work is that of working powerfully or working effectually. In other words, uh, the man who is Uh, sold in bondage to these desires, is unable not to sin. Sin is a powerful force in his life from which he cannot break free. It is constantly not only inciting him to sin, but bringing him to sin. It is a fervent desire which he cannot oppose, and which cannot be opposed except by the almighty power of the Holy Spirit in us. And so the sense of the position of the man who is in sin is that he is not in control, but sin is. He's in bondage. He's a slave. But then as a third point, he says that these sinful passions are working powerfully through the law. That's the key thought. It's what he said in chapter 5, verse 20, that the law came so that sin would abound. Now, Paul was making that as a historical statement, but here Paul is speaking of this in a more personal way, and he'll expound it in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, the way the law comes along and it actually incites us to sin. It doesn't restrain us, it, it actually does the opposite. This is the trouble for the sinner being under the law. It is that the law, far from helping him, makes things worse. As he later says in verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment or by the law, produced in me all manner of evil desire. That's precisely what he's saying in chapter 7, verse 5. That sin actually abounds by the law in the man who is under the law. And I would ask you if that is really surprising to you. Or is Paul simply describing uh, to us what we already know? What we see in others, what we saw in ourselves at least when we were in the flesh. Everything about life, everything about human experience confirms this, which is why when Paul goes on to expound this thought, he does so in a personal way. He says, you know, this is what my experience was. I found that through the law. I didn't find life. I found death. I didn't sin less, but I sinned more. It is as though, Paul says, that the very prohibition itself presented in the law, thou shalt not, is daring us to sin. It suggests the very idea of sin uh, to the sinner, and it arouses in him his own sense of rebellion. Uh, These are the things that we'll analyze next time, the way the law actually provokes sin rather than restricts it. And so in the presence of this provocation, the sinner cannot help himself like a child whom you tell not to do something. And it's as though you gave the child the idea to do it. And so, of course... In that moment, what do they do? Well, they do it. That's exactly what we're all like. We're like children, Paul says. But the end of such things, he tells us, is death. And that has also been a familiar point. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 20. The end, or, or verse 21, rather. For the end of those things is death. He's saying precisely the same thing here, that as uh, these sinful passions aroused through the law were at work powerfully in our members, they are bearing fruit to death. The only fruit we're able to bear, if you can even speak this way, if you can even speak of fruit in a man's life who's under sin, is the fruit of death itself. As though Paul is saying, oh sinner, do you not see 
Do you not see the end of these things? Do you not see the fruitlessness of such an existence? Do you not realize that you can never do anything for God so long as you are living a life of sin and bondage to the law? Well, the trouble with the sinner is that he cannot see it. But at least uh, as Paul is appealing to Christians, he realizes that they can. He realizes that we can look upon our former selves and realize that the the path on which we were walking was that uh, which led to death. There was no life in it. There was no fruit. There was nothing good, nothing pleasing in God's sight. Oh, I didn't see it then, the Christian says, but now I see it clearly. Now I see what I was and what God has saved me from. This is a very fitting description of the man who is under the law, chapter 5, verse 7. But on the other side, there is the new man, the new life, uh, verse 6, with its characteristic features as well. And once again, there were four. You notice the contrast when we were in the flesh, but now we have. That's exactly what he did at the end of chapter six. What we were, but what we are now. The first thing he says is we've been delivered from the law. As all of you know, I'm sure the gospel means deliverance. It spells deliverance for a man. It's deliverance from sin and Satan. It's deliverance from our former selves, even, you might say. It's deliverance from the world and ourselves, from the kingdom of darkness. But did you ever realize, Paul says, that the gospel spells deliverance from the law itself? That is the law of God. It takes a man right out from under the law and it delivers him from it. Did you ever think to put the gospel in those terms personally? That once I was under the law, but I am no more. And do you glory in that fact? Or did you forget what it meant to be under the law? To be under the law is to be in bondage. To be under the law is to be under the wrath of God in condemnation. To be under the law further, Paul says. And here is the scandalous thought to the Jew. But it's true. It really is true. It is to be in bondage to sin. So that you find through the law you're sinning more and more. Yes, as a man, I need to be delivered from the law. And that is precisely what God does. And how does he do it? Well, that's the second thing. Having died to that or to what we were held by. Paul says we were held by it. We were in bondage. We were held captive so that we could not break free. But along came Christ alongside the law itself. And he broke the power of the law and of sin in our lives. By his cross, chapter 7, verse 4, he made us to die to the law. Oh, it is true, Paul says, as I remind you of the arguments earlier in chapter 7, there was no other way to break free, chapter 7, verse 1, unless, well, the law holds us in bondage so long as we live. But with death, there is deliverance, and there's been a death, the death of Jesus Christ. And the believer has died with him and has been raised with him to something new. So that now there is the possibility, not only that he should be freed from his former bondage, but now he might be held by another, not by the law, but by Jesus Christ. And why? Well, as a third point, so that he should be able to serve. Verse six, having died to to what we were held by so that we should serve again. Notice the positive. Paul is never content with negatives. He doesn't just say you're done with the old. But he always emphasizes the newness of the new. It isn't just deliverance from, it's deliverance unto. 
The, the, the new man is not only freed from his former bondage where he could do nothing for God, but now as a result of his deliverance from the law and the new relationship that is formed with Jesus Christ, he is able to serve. Serve whom? Well, obviously, Paul is still thinking in terms of what he was saying in chapter six, namely uh, the slavery and the service to God, no longer to sin, but to God. Now this man is able to serve God. And that is precisely what he couldn't do before. Try as he might, he was held captive by the law. And rather than producing anything for God by the law, he was only made to sin more, even unto death. But now a new possibility enters in. And how does it do so? How does it come about? Well, Paul says as a fourth point, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. Again, uh, you, you notice the contrast between the old and the new. And this really captures the contrast, perhaps as well as any statement in the New Testament. Romans chapter seven, verse six. There is on the one side the old. The oldness of the letter, he says, here is the man under the law. What we were, Paul says, and what was the limitation? What was the problem? It was not that what the law said was no good or of no value or that the law was sin, as Paul will ask in the next verse. Is the law sin? No, that's not it. It was simply this, that the law as law, that is his letter, has in itself no power to change us. It has no power to enable us to obey the things it tells us to do. And that, Paul says, is the old position, the oldness of the letter. The old man who was under the law only had access to the letter, that is to say, to the written word. But the new man, Paul says, enjoys something different and altogether better. His new position is that of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's entered along with Christ in his resurrection into the realm of life and of grace, which is the realm of the Holy Spirit. Now the spirit is at work in him. The very spirit, Paul says, who gave new life to Jesus Christ in his resurrection. That same spirit is at work in the believer, the new man. Enabling him to serve God and to bear fruit for him. This is something new, you see. It's something that was not possible in the old position. It's new once more from the standpoint of history, but especially new in a man's experience. Not only are we done with the old, but the new has come. What's new? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The presence of a new power and of life when there was none before. And what he is producing in us are the very things the law required. He is enabling us to, do, to not do the things it tells us not to do and to do the things it tells us to do. You see, in many ways, that is the paradox of the Christian experience. And it is this thought that trips up so many uh, on the idea of grace. Here is the thought that we had to get out from under the law in order to keep it. We had to get out from under the law if ever we wished to serve and to bear fruit. But that is precisely the argument he makes. And it is confirmed in every way in our experience. If we can relate to what Paul is saying here, what we were and what we are now, we realize looking back on the old existence that what Paul is saying is exactly right. We can say with him, uh, you know, back then I couldn't keep the law. In fact, I found that I was held back. I was restrained. I was provoked. 
And rather than getting better, I was getting worse all the time. But the testimony that I am now able to give and to add to Paul's is that now that I find in the freedom and the newness of the Spirit that his commandments are not burdensome to me, but I actually delight in them along with David, and I delight to do them, and that I'm able to do them. No, not perfectly, but I am able to do so. And so we're not surprised to find Paul going in this precise direction when he resumes the argument in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, uh, let, me, let me just read verses 3 and 4. He says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not through the flesh, you see, but through the newness of the spirit. From there, Paul goes on to contrast the life of the spirit. It's not like life in the flesh, verses 5 through 8. The life of the flesh is a life of disobedience and enmity to God. Life of the spirit is rather, he says, verse 6, that of life and peace. And therefore, a life which is pleasing to God. A life in which, he says, verse 10, Christ is in you. What more do we have to do with the flesh, Paul will say? Are we not debtors to the spirit? And are we not meant to live and be led by the Spirit? And are not such persons the true sons of God? Verse 14. Oh yes, Paul says. And you see, we're only beginning to consider uh, the argument. In verse 6, he holds it off. He answers the objections. He resumes it in chapter 8. But we are in a new position. We now serve God, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. And we are no more held by the law. We've been delivered. We've died to that which held us captive. And now we are able to serve God. And that is exactly what we intend to do. I hope that is your intention. I hope that is your desire. Otherwise, I hardly imagine that Paul has anything to say to you in Romans. Paul is speaking to those who wish to serve God. Those who wish to live a life that is, that is pleasing to him. Only who found that the law is powerless to do so in their lives. Those who are interested in grace. And so Paul is still refuting the, the assertion of the antinomian. And he's still answering the objection of the legalist. Those who distort grace. Paul is saying you've misunderstood. The life of grace is a life in the spirit. It is a life full of the Holy Spirit. It is a life which therefore is pleasing to God in every way. Away then with the notion once and for all. That the tendency of grace and the effect of the Holy Spirit in a man's life is to excuse a life of sin. Not at all, Paul says. It's just the opposite. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to that, which, uh, to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so returning to the debate between these two men, uh, with which we began... I hope it is clear why saying to the man who says, you don't need to keep the law because you're not under it. Why saying in response to him, oh yes, but I'm under grace, is precisely what affirms his desire to keep the law. It is because now he's in a position to keep it. Now he's able to do so, whereas he was not before. In that sense, really, what we are looking at here is not so much a question of law, but of power and of life. 
and of the Holy Spirit. That is the real issue. And thank God Paul will go on with this uh, very soon. But for now, we leave it there and we come to the table. Read the words of institution from Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my uh, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I would just remind you of what the Apostle Paul says uh, in First Corinthians chapter 11, when he says. Let a man examine himself. So often uh, in the life of the Puritans and in the preaching of the Puritans, they would preach that passage just on its own. Let a man examine himself. But uh, I'm sure they said it in the sermons. But but the real effect of that phrase has to do with the Lord's Supper. That the that that, that in the course of worship, we're not only praising God and rejoicing, but we're coming under the power of those things. The preaching is something that is discerning us. It's sifting us. It's discovering what's in us. It's either encouraging us or else discouraging us, that sort of thing. It's either promoting the faith which is there or it's making us aware of its lack. The Lord's Supper has a precisely the same effect. It comes to you with power. Paul says, just after he says, let a man examine himself, he warns them. Because some of you don't do this, you're sick and even dying. It's a dangerous thing. This is the testimony of the Old Testament, but we forget too often it's the testimony of the new as well. It's a dangerous thing to come in contact with divine things. And we ought not to do so lightly. We ought not to do so in the spirit of sin and unbelief. As I say, to come under the power of these things is to be found out. It was at the table that Judas was found out, as you remember. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm, <laughs> this room is full of Judases. I, I, I'm certain that's not true, but there may be one or two. My greater desire, my greater hope is that through the power of the preaching and through the power of the table that that the other 11 are found here in our company. True Christian people, those who delight to be in the midst of other believers, those who delight to deal with spiritual truths and spiritual things. There isn't anything here for the man of the world. What interest does he have in a sermon on the old man and the new man? He's still living in the realm of the things of the world. What interest does he have with a piece of bread and a little cup of wine? But these are of great concern to the Christian man. These are the things which nourish the inner man, the new man. And so I invite all who uh, enjoy such new life in Jesus Christ to partake and to enjoy and to be strengthened. Uh, But I warn those who do not not to come. For as I said, it is a dangerous thing to meet with God. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that through the gift of uh, your son, who is your gift to us. We have the promise and the sure possession of everlasting life and salvation itself. 
and the forgiveness of sins. These are things that nothing can ever rob from us if they are ours. And these are things which you are constantly pledging to us, whether through the preaching or through your word or through the presence of a fellow believer or here at the table. God, strengthen our faith, we humbly pray, and enable us to lay hold more firmly on what it is you have for us in Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.